Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord God, I just thank you so much for this time. I pray that you would quiet our hearts and our minds so that we might be prepared to hear what it is that you have to say to us today. Lord, we thank you for this time uh, and for this place that we could come. Lord, we... uh, Lord, I pray that you would take whatever it is that I've put together here, Lord, and you would use it for your glory and for your kingdom, Lord. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last week at the end, we we talked about a couple of things. One of the the things was that Moses was instructing the men that when they went out to camp, out to war, that when they set up their camp, they were supposed to be sure to go outside of the camp when they had to go to the bathroom. Um, and they were supposed to take a shovel with them, and when they went out, they would dig a hole, go to the bathroom, cover it up. And, and, uh, but they had to do it out of the camp. It wasn't supposed to be within their camp. And so one of the reasons we know that this was so important is because disease could easily um, take out an entire army even much quicker and more efficiently than an outside enemy. Disease that would rise up from within the camp could actually destroy an army quicker than an enemy that came from outside the camp. I think about that sometimes when I think that we sometimes focus on what we perceive to be the enemy outside of the camp and where those attacks are going to come from. But actually, the most dangerous and maybe even the most effective enemy in our lives often comes from within, the enemy that is within, which is why when he was telling them to um, get rid of the evil from their camp, he says, get rid of the evil that's inside your camp. Um, And so we need to be sure to do the same. We need to make sure that we're getting the enemy that's from within out. These are things like grumbling and gossip, a poor attitude and anger and wrath and blasphemy and filthy language and unforgiveness. These are the things from within that will destroy us much more effectively than any enemy that's going to come from the outside. And so as he warned them, he warns us to make sure that the enemy from within is put out of the camp. We ended last week on this idea of the uh, slaves from foreign nations were able to come to the camp of the Israelites and find refuge, that they were able to come, um, and if they made it there, then they were to be treated as free men. They were no longer slaves, but they were free, and they weren't even supposed to be treated as anything differently. They could live where they wanted to live within the camp, and they weren't supposed to be treated by the Israelites as slaves either. Um, And we looked at what a wonderful picture of salvation that is for us. Uh, I was a slave. The Bible says I was a slave to sin, but at one point I ran to Jesus and was able to find refuge in Jesus. And he didn't treat me as a second-class citizen or a slave. He brought me in. In fact, the Bible says that I'm a joint heir with him in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I choose to be a bondservant of Christ, which means I, I willingly give my life to him in service, which Paul would say, I was a slave, but now I'm free, but now I'm a bond slave, a bond servant, which means I've chosen to be a servant of the Most High God. 
but I was able to find refuge by running to Jesus, who didn't treat me as a slave, but treated me as free. And as I thought about that this weekend, and as I was looking over my notes, as I'm sure all of you do as well, just pour over and re-listen to the message each week, um, I heard God say to me, and, yes, I'm a refuge for you, and you're no longer a slave, and, and I thought, and you made me a new creation? And he said, and? And you poured out your spirit upon me? And he said, and? And I said, you built me a mansion in heaven that I get to live in someday? And he said, and it's not all about you. Do you remember this theme that keeps coming up? This isn't all about you. It's not all about you. It's not all about you. It is obviously all about me. Well, at least that's what I feel. I'm sure if you're sitting there going, no, it is, it's about me. But it's not all about you. Yes, Jesus was the, the one that we ran to, to be freed from slavery, to be set free. But now What? He says, it's not all about you. And the question is, why would a foreign slave run to the camp of the Israelites? Why would they do that? Because that foreign slave believed that if he made it to that camp, that they would be free. They believed that there was something different about those people, that if they made it there, they would be freed. And so here's the question. Is your life a refuge to those around you that need to be saved? Do people look and say, if I go there, there's something different? You know, the Israelites, they weren't the same as everybody else, were they? No, we've been talking about this for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. God said, do these things this way so that you will be different than everybody else. But they weren't just different. They were good different. So much so that someone would look at their lives, look at them at the camp and say, whatever it is, I've got, this is bad where I am here, but they've got something that's good. I want that. And the slave would run to them. And when they got there, they would find freedom. Does your life reflect the same thing? Does your life reflect a life that someone would look at and say, they're different and there's something good and I need that and go to that person? Or... Are you, according to them, the loudmouth who always has something to say about their lifestyle, their friends, their candidate? Is there something good different about you that would cause them to run to you? I mean, look, the Bible says that, you know, if you don't, if you can, you can speak with all the eloquent words and you can say all the right things, but if there's not love in your heart, what are you? A clanging symbol, a noisemaker. So are, are people looking at your life and you're just making noise? Or are they looking at your life and saying, I don't, there's something different, there's something good, I need that. You know, there are so many people who will tell you their testimony and say, you know what, I'm here today because I experienced the hospitality of my Christian neighbor, and that drew me into what they had. It wasn't that they, you know, had all kinds of signs and symbols and flags and fish on the back of their truck. They showed me some hospitality and some love, and that drew me in. They were different than everybody else around me. They were different. Are you different? And I'm not saying compromise the truth. 
I'm not saying take the word of God and change it up so that it's easier to handle. Not at all. But I'm saying, are you different in a good way that people say, I need that, I want that? Are you hospitable even to the ones who are foreign, coming from a foreign land? So much so that they know that if they come there, something different, something good will happen. Are you good? You know what? A bunch of us are probably here because of that very thing, because somebody was good different, and it drew us in. Um, and maybe some of you are thinking of that person right now. You're like, oh, yeah, so-and-so treated me nice, or they were kind, or they had me over to their house, and they listened to me, and they shared from their heart, and, and I was drawn in. And some of you can share that story, but I wonder, have you ever told that person? Have you ever gone to that person and say, you know what? You just were really wonderful, and you drew me in, and I'm, I, I, I'm here because you were so kind to me. Did you, ever, did you ever tell that person? I had to go home today, and I had to call that person today. I'd be like, hey, by the way, you know it was like 25 years ago, but... All right. Chapter 23, verse 17. There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughter of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So they're going into a land that is completely pagan. And part of those pagan ceremonies was, um, was built in a temple prostitution which means part of their worship ceremony was going in and worshiping or giving an offering, but then participating in some kind of a sexual activity with a temple prostitute. And what this is telling us here is that they were male and female prostitutes who were employed by these uh, temples. And, you know, we're going to see if you, were, if you um, are familiar at all with, with Corinth, they had like a thousand temple prostitutes to, the, to the, the goddess of fertility at the time when Paul was there. And so what God is warning them is saying, look, you're going into this land. Again, this is the, the same thing he's done before where he said, don't worship their gods and don't worship me in the way that they worship their gods. You are to be different not to do any of these things. There should be no ritual prostitution, either male or female. None of that. He says, it's an abomination to me. He also goes on to say, that you shouldn't take any of the wages, anything gained from temple prostitution, and bring it to me as an offering. In fact, when I was reading through that, God told me this, don't you dare try to honor me with something that is dishonorable. Don't honor me with something that is dishonorable. Now, the sad part about this is as, as much as God warns them, and you remember... They haven't actually gone into the promised land. They're still kind of on the border of the Jordan River. In fact, it's taking us much, much longer to say all of the things that Moses actually told them in just a couple of weeks. And we've been here for like, I don't know, like 50 months or something ridiculous. Um, but they haven't gone in yet. It's just like God is looking ahead and saying, I know these things are going to come up and they're going to be issues, so I'm warning you now not to do them. But guess what happens? So we can read in the Old Testament that there were two kings in particular who it says when they went in, they expelled all the temple prostitutes. And that's hundreds of years after this happened. And so what did they actually allow to happen? The very thing that God is saying, don't do this. 
they were allowing it to happen so much so that it needed to be expelled from the land. And, and one story is in 1 Kings and one story is in 2 Kings. So what does that mean? One king expelled them. Then what happened? It started all up again. And they had to do it again and a second time. How does that happen? You remember when Jesus first came into Jerusalem and he cleared out the, the temple of all of the money changers, right? He, he just, he cleared them all out because he was like, oh, you're, you, you've turned this place into a marketplace. It's supposed to be a temple, a place of prayer. And then on the week before he was to be crucified, he came in and he had to do it again. It was three years later. He had to clean it all out again. And I believe that they all came back in very subtly and very kind of under the radar. And I think that what happened here is like they just weren't paying attention and it started to creep in. And the pagan worship of the world around them just started to creep in and maybe it was subtle because they had to expel it and it came back and they had to expel it again. But one of the things he's saying is if you find yourself in a position where you have something gained that's dishonorable, don't bring it to me as an offering. Don't bring me something dishonorable and try and honor me with it. It's an abomination, God says. Verse 19 says, so you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out of interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest. So there's two things going on here. Because first of all, you could look at that and say, well, that doesn't seem, you know, like, what, it's okay to charge a foreigner interest, but not a brother? Well, God says, if it's a brother that's coming to you, it's very likely that he's coming to you out of some kind of dire need. Like he doesn't have any food or he doesn't have any money or he has nothing to wear. And he's coming to you and saying, can you please help me? On the side of the foreigner, it's very likely commerce or business. And so what God is saying is, in the terms of business, if you're going to lend money to somebody for business, then it's okay to make a little bit of money on the deal. You can charge interest fairly. But in the situation where you're talking about helping out a brother who is in need, you should not try and fill your pockets with gain, but rather just take care of the one who needs help. Take care of each other. This was to help a needy brother, not enrich the lender. I was talking about this kind of idea last week with um, my brother Steve. And uh, coincidentally, we were in line for the potluck, so we were waiting for food. And, and I said, look, you know, here's the thing. Like, if we're all standing in a big kind of circle, right, and, uh, and I come up and I start to, like, like massage your shoulders, and the guy in front of me, uh, in front of him, does his shoulders, and that guy does his shoulders, and it goes all the way around. Eventually, the, last, the first last person, someone's doing his shoulders, and everybody gets taken care of. Do you understand? If everybody does, takes care of the next person, then the next person eventually is you, and you get taken care of as well. Doesn't that make sense? If I take care of you, and you take care of somebody, and they take care of somebody, eventually someone takes care of me, and we're all taken care of. Why doesn't that work? Because it's all about me. <laughs> That's the thing. Because I'm too busy thinking about me to think about who else I can take care of. But see, what does the Lord say right here? He says, if you do that, if you, if you take care of your brother, if you don't charge them interest, um, the Lord may bless you 
in all to which you set your hand in, in the land which you are entering into the process. Now, I don't believe that that's the motivation for doing it. Like, well, I'm only going to help you because I know God's going to bless me. And then we start to interpret what that blessing means. Like, well, that's, you know what, if I give you money, then I'm going to get like 10 times back the money. It doesn't say that. But what it says is you'll be blessed. Have you ever helped anybody out? Anybody ever helped anybody? <laughs> yes, thank you. A couple of people. All right. So a handful of you are awake. And uh, but isn't that an amazing feeling? When like you help somebody who really needs help and, and you do it and you get nothing in return except for, wow, that was an amazing feeling to be used by God. And then you start thinking, who else can I help? Who, hey, do you need help? Can I help you? And then, you know, and it just grows and grows. And it's a blessing that God is saying, I'm going to bless you. Now, sometimes he does bless you in ways that are beyond uh, what you um, expected. Maybe it is that, you know, you give somebody money and, and somehow you end up with $1,000 back. I don't know. I'm not that kind of church. We don't preach that. But is it possible? Maybe. But God is saying, take care of each other. Can we just do that? Can we take care of one another? Now, verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God and you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require of you and it would be a sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be a sin to you. That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform for you, for your, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. All right, there's a couple of very fundamental things right here. Number one, there's nothing here that says you're required to make a vow. In fact, it says you're not required to make a vow to God. You're, it's voluntary. But if you do make a vow from God, God says that you are to what? Fulfill it. So here's an example. God, if you would just get me through this really tough situation right now, I vow, I promise that I will read through the Bible all the way through every single year. Well, is God listening? He is, for sure, because the word says if you make a vow, he's going to require you to fulfill it. So then what happens? He gets you out of whatever the situation you were in, and now you have to make a decision. Am I going to read the Bible through every single year like I promised the God I would, or am I going to pretend like I never said it and just kind of move on? Well, God is listening, and he expects you to fulfill your vow. Again, he doesn't require you to make vows, but he says if you're going to make a vow, you need to fulfill it. Now, a lot of times when we make vows like this, they're, they're things that would be naturally good. Look, look I'm going to go to church every Sunday without fail. God, if you would just do this, I'm going to go every Sunday. I'm going to read my Bible every single day. In fact, I'm going to get through it in a year. And we, we make these great statements, and then God says, oh, those are good things. I'm going to hold you to that. That's what your vow is. Is it good to read your Bible every day? Yes. This is interactive. You can answer in everything. Yes. Is it, would it be a good thing to read your Bible through every year? Yes, it would be probably. Is it good to be to church all the time? Yes, so these are all good things that God is saying. Look, all these things that you said you would do that I'm going to hold you to, they're all good things for you anyway. There's a story of a, a woman in the Bible. Her name is Hannah. Hannah had a husband who had another wife as well. So Hannah's husband had two wives, Hannah and that other lady. And the other lady was able to have children, but Hannah wasn't. Hannah was barren. 
And the other lady would always throw that up in Hannah's face and, and, and mock her because she wasn't able to have any children. And so, um, and actually, in this story, Hannah's husband loved Hannah more than the other wife. Um, and so he would give her double portion of whatever, which I'm sure made it just a breeze to live with this other wife, you know, when you're getting like all of the, the favor from the husband. But anyway, Hannah, one day, uh, one feast day, goes up to the temple and she makes a vow to God. And she says, God, if you would just give me a, a child, I will turn him over to service in the temple for his whole life. If you could just do this. And then she goes uh, out to the stairs of the temple and she starts praying to God. And she's not speaking, but she, her lips are moving, you know. And, and Eli, the priest, comes out and he sees her and he says, Woman, how long will you be drunk on your wine? Because he perceives that she's just like drunk on the steps of the temple. And she says, oh, no, I'm not drunk. It's, uh, I'm praying, and I'm asking God to give me a son. And if he does, then I'm going to dedicate him to the temple. And so he says, uh, you know what? God bless you in your request. And so Hannah goes home and her husband, and they're together. And uh, as a result, she has a child. And uh, so right now, Hannah has a choice. She made a vow to God that says, if you give me this child, I will dedicate him. I will hand him over to the temple so that he can dedicate his life or... I can pretend like I never said that and keep the only child that I have who I was so desperate for that I made the vow in the first place. And that can be to us as well, that same choice. If we, if we make some kind of a promise or vow to God and, we're faith, and he delivers us from whatever we prayed for, we are standing at that same fork in the road. I can be faithful to the vow that I made or I can pretend like I never said it and just go on. Now, in Hannah's case, she actually fulfilled the vow. It says that she took her son, whose name was, by the way, Samuel, and weaned him for however long that takes, three years or so, and handed him over to Eli at the temple. And it says that she would come every year, and she would make clothes for him, and she would bring him. But he lived at the temple and served in the temple, and he served Eli, who was the priest. And, um, and because she was faithful, God blessed her. You know what he did? He gave her five more children. Five more children. And Samuel grew up to be this amazing prophet of God in the church. In fact, you know, I always thought, you know, in my mind, I always picture Samuel as this, like, old, bald guy, you know, just walking along prophesying. But, dude, this guy would come with a sword in his belt to camp, and every time they would see him coming, they would be like, you know, are you coming with good news or bad news? Because oftentimes he would come in and be like, all right, line up, it's time to die. Because, you know, that was the word that he would get from God. He would come in and he was like Samuel, the, like the sword. Um, but he was a mighty man of God, used in a mighty way by God because his mother was faithful to fulfill that vow. She could have pretended like she never said it. She wasn't required to make that vow, but she did voluntarily. And God said, I expect you to fulfill it if you make that vow. And he says the same thing to them. And he says the same to us. Now it says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your containers. <clears throat> Way back in Genesis, when Abraham um, had a child with his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, that child's name was Ishmael. Now, around 12 or 13 years old, God told Abraham that Ishmael and Hagar had to leave the camp. Um, and so uh, Abraham sent them out. Now, somewhere along that journey, Hagar uh, and Ishmael, Hagar feels like 
we're going to die. We don't have any water. We don't have any protection. We're going to die. And then God says to her, you don't have to worry because I'm going to take your son. I'm going to make a great nation out of him, and I'm going to provide for you. And it says that she lifted up her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And in that moment, she said that God was El Roy, the God who sees me, El Roy, like the jet meet George Jetson, El Roy, the God who sees me. Now, later on, we'll know that Moses will call God Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. So God sees us, and he provides for us. Now, how does he do that? Sometimes it's miraculous, right? Can you think of a few ways? Manna, quail, water from a rock, um, splitting the Red Sea and providing a a fire exit (laughs) um, right through there. But sometimes God provides by using other people like you and I. And in this case, what he's talking about is he says, I'm going to use someone else's vineyard to provide food for those who need food. And so it wasn't like grapes were falling from the sky, but he was saying, I'm going to use this vineyard that I've given to somebody else, and through that, you're going to be provided for. But what he's saying to the people who are going in to eat of it is, you can eat those grapes to get your fill, but don't bring your Tupperware container and start filling it up because you're greedy. You can satisfy your hunger, but not your greed, is what he's saying to them. Satisfy your hunger, but not your greed. In your neighbor's vineyard. He says, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads of of the grain with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. And so he does two things here. Again, he, he's providing for those who need food by saying you can go in and you can pluck the grain and eat it, but you can't harvest it. So you can't walk in and be like, hey, I'm just going to go in your field for a second and be like, whoosh, whoosh, and, and harvest their grain. Now, also what he's doing right here is he's distinguishing the difference between just plucking grain to eat it and harvesting. Going in and plucking grain isn't harvesting, but they kind of got this confused later on. If you remember, Jesus was walking through the field with his disciples, and what were they doing? They were plucking grain as they walked along, and they were eating it as they're allowed. But the Pharisees came, and they said, your disciples are harvesting on the Sabbath. Now, first of all, were they harvesting? No, Moses had already clearly made the difference between what plucking and eating was and what harvesting would be, and they were not harvesting. It was the Sabbath, though, but what they were trying to say is, look, they're harvesting. They were trying to trap Jesus, okay? And what Jesus ultimately said was, well, don't you know that the the Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath? And he turns it around on them. But what they've done here is they're trying to, to mislead and say they're harvesting. And clearly we could see by what God is telling them through Moses was they weren't harvesting. That was something completely different. In fact, God allowed for those who were hungry to go into the field and pluck the grain. Okay, 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, just read along with me. I'm going to read this whole passage. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because she, he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies, he who took her as wife, then her former husband who divorced her, must not take her back 
to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Whew, that's a lot. Um, there's a couple of things. First of all, when this is saying, when a man takes a wife and he finds some uncleanness in her. Now, around 100 BC, there were two basic schools of thought uh, on, um, on, on Jewish teaching. One was a rabbi named Shammai, who was more on the, for lack of a better word, more on the conservative side, and Hillel, who was more on the liberal side. Um, Shammai was very much just about um, Jewish culture and Jewish law and based every decision on that, whereas Hillel was more influenced or was influenced by some outside uh, influences like Persia and things like that. It was bringing in, coincidentally, if you read about them, Shammai was actually about the um, concern with the rights and protection of women, where Hillel didn't feel like women were people at all, just so you kind of get an understanding of how this is going. And so Shammai said that, um, that uncleanness, as is here, was sexual, some kind of sexual immorality. So he was saying that if a man um, finds that his wife has some sexual immorality in her, that he can write her a certificate of divorce so that he can um, put her off, divorce her, and then he can move on and marry somebody else. Whereas Hillel would say, no, uncleanness, it can't be sexual immorality because if she had some sexual immorality and it was found out, then she would be brought out to the city gate and stoned, and so she'd be dead. There wasn't any, any need for a certificate of divorce. So uncleanness must have been something else. And so what Hillel then decided to do was to say, if uncleanness means something other than sexual immorality, if it must be something else, then I'm going to define what it is. And he set out to say that uncleanness is anytime a husband finds anything, anything unfavorable in his wife at all, he would be allowed to divorce her. And so that left a lot of room for interpretation for example, you could say, well, I don't like the way she looks in the morning when I wake up. Well, I don't like how she cleans house. I don't like that she gets up and tells me that I can't wear this on Sunday to church. All of these are reasons then that they were allowed to write a certificate of divorce to their wives. If she used too much salt in the food, he could claim that he had been assaulted. That one, that one got you to laugh? <laughs> but see, what, what, what God is doing here in this passage is he's trying to set up boundaries actually to protect women. First of all, making sure that they had a certificate of divorce meant that they had some document that said then that they were legally not married and could get married again, according to Moses. Um, but... There's something interesting here. Hillel said that if it was uncleanness, sexual uncleanness, then, it, it, I mean, it couldn't be sexual impurity because then she would be stoned by her husband out at the city gate. He's assuming there that if the husband found that there had been some sexual immorality, that he would do that. Although the law didn't say he had to, it just said that it was a course of action. He could choose not to have her stoned on the city gate. And where do we, how do we know that? Just go, go way forward to Mary. 
See, Mary was found to be with child, and it was not from Joseph, her betrothed husband. Now it says that Joseph wanted to put her off quietly and not, and this was before Gabriel came to him. So he said, well, this woman that I'm betrothed to, um, she's, she's pregnant, it's not by me. So obviously there's some sexual immorality, but I don't have to bring her out in front of the house of her father and stone her. Um, I can put her off quietly. And so she ha- he had the option, they had the option. And so Hillel is assuming that it would have to happen. So then he comes up with what it could mean. In Hebrew, you know what the word uncleanness means in Hebrew? Nakedness. See, it's kind of more the Shammai side to me. But that's the point, is God is saying, look, I'm making a way to protect the welfare of these women. Over and over again, we see this. The bride's price, the dowry, the, the protection that God shows women. I mean, I just... I hear often that people say, oh, the Bible is so misogynistic. You know, it's all about men and not about women, and God doesn't care about women. He's all about the men. I don't see that. In fact, I see God again and again providing for the women, providing for those who, you know, have uh, no other options. God steps in and says, I'm going to make this. I'm going to do this. You're going to have to do that. This is what's going to be in place so that the women are protected. Now he goes on in verse 5, he says, When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go to war or be charged with any business. He shall stay free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken a year. That's a long honeymoon. I went for a week, maybe. A year, God is saying, you know what? You guys, when you get married, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take a year off. You're not going to go to war. You're not going to be about any business. You're just going to spend time together for a year. I'm looking at you two. A year? Why? <laughs> what does it say? Why? To bring happiness to his wife, whom he has taken. See, God was like, I want you to grow as a couple. I want you to grow together as a couple because I brought you together. Do you know what would have made the wife super happy back then? if she was able to bear a child in that year, because that was kind of the, the thing. It was like, you know, if you were to be able to bring children into the world, that was like status for you. You know, you got to show that like, oh, I, I, God's given me the gift of children. And so the idea was like, you're going to stay home without any distractions so that you can bring children into this world, and that will make your wife happy. Um, there's a saying that we know here, maybe some of you guys have heard this, happy wife, happy life. That's right. Happy wife, happy life. So God sets up a a, a way that says, you know what? You're going to be excused if we go to battle. You don't have to. And this doesn't mean he didn't work, by the way. It just meant that he didn't have to go away to work. Um, But that they were together intentionally for a year um, to make each other happy. Did anybody ever tell you when you got married? I'm just telling you this. That first year is the hardest year. The first year. Well, if I didn't think that, I was certainly thinking at that, like, that point. It's like before you even get married, they're like, that first year is going to be hard. It's like, really? How about this is going to be amazing? It's going to be an amazing year, and you're going to be together, and it's going to be happy. No, I got that first year is going to be the hardest year ever. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> uh, let's go on. All right, 
no man shall take the lower or the upper millstone and pledge for for he's the he takes one's living in a pledge. So he's going to move on. He's going to talk about how again how you are to treat a brother who comes to you in need. And one of the things he talks about is if a brother comes to you and says, "Look, I need money or I need grain in order to make bread so I can feed my family." You are not supposed to say, okay, here's the money or the grain, but I'm going to take your millstone, the very thing that you actually use to provide bread for your family. You know, they would have a round millstone like this, and then they would have another one on the top that was the upper, and it would roll around, and it would grain, grain up the grind. Yeah, and it would make flour, and that's how they would make bread. It would be like if a baker came to you and they were like, look, I just need some money to get my bakery going. You would be like, okay, but I'm going to take your oven as collateral. That doesn't make any sense. That would be cruel. And so he's saying, don't do that when you, when you help out a brother. Don't take the thing they need to survive. Um, if any man is found kidnapping any of his brothers or the children of Israel and he mistreats or sells him, then the kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from your camp. You know, back then, kidnapping was a capital offense. It used to be a capital offense in this country too for a while, but then it got changed. And what was the year? I don't remember. I heard that. It was 1977. And I thought, oh, that's, isn't that the same year that we talked about? Um, but it's not. And it actually isn't. I looked it up. It would have been cool, but it's not. Anyway, uh, verse 8, it says, Take heed of an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests and the Levites, um, according to the priests and the Levites, shall teach you just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. You know, leprosy was a, a disease that uh, didn't have any cure, actually. It was a disease that would start on the inside, and as it got worse, it would work its way out, and it would manifest itself on the skin as like a white kind of dead, ashy skin. Eventually kills all the nerves until you don't have any feeling at all, and then you eventually you die from this, and there's no cure for it. Even today, it's not called leprosy anymore. It's called Hansen's disease. They're not here. That would have been so much better. I'm going to go to their house and tell them that later. <clears throat> but there was, there's still no cure. Only through medication now, they can slow it down. But at that time, there was no cure for it. However, God gave them a procedure that if someone had leprosy and then was cleansed of it, a procedure that they had to go through where they would go and show themselves to the priest and the priest would look them all over and check them out. And then he would bring them out in front of the congregation and say, this person is now cleansed of leprosy. Because if they had leprosy, they had to stay away from everybody. They had to go outside of the camp. They couldn't touch anybody. It was highly contagious. Um, if they were coming into contact with people, they had to call out that there was a leper coming, it's a leper, and, and everyone, they would have to stay so many yards away. The leprosy in the Bible so often is a picture of sin because of the very same reasons. It can start small inside. No one can see it, but eventually it grows and grows until it starts to manifest itself on the outside. Sin, by the way, is very contagious. My sin can transfer over to you by us being in the same place. I can affect the choices that you make. So they had a procedure that they were supposed to follow, which is really crazy. Um, there was never a time that I could think of 
other than God's intervention when someone was cured of leprosy. In fact, one of them that I'm thinking of is where in the New Testament, where a leper comes to Jesus and he actually heals the man of leprosy and he says to him, go and show yourself to the priest so that he can see that you're cleansed, but don't tell him that I did it. And so I can imagine that man, he's cleansed of leprosy. He's now returned back to society and he goes to the priest and he says, I've been cleansed of leprosy. What's the procedure? And the priest is like, I don't know. He had to go and get his book and, and dust it off and get it out because they'd never used it because leprosy wasn't a curable disease. And he reminds them of the story of Miriam. Now, if you don't know, Miriam was the um, sister of Moses. It was Moses, and then he had a brother Aaron, and he had a sister Miriam. And at some point, and this is in Numbers chapter 12, it says that Aaron and Miriam started to grumble against Moses. In fact, what they, they, they kind of were upset because he had a, uh, a wife that wasn't um, a Jew. Um, and so they were grumbling against him. And then they said, well, how come God, you know, how come Moses is in charge of everything? I mean, does God speak only to Moses? Doesn't God speak to you and I as well? And they started to grumble against Moses. Well, God was listening. And God called out to all three of them. And he says, I want you to all come out and I want you to meet me at the tabernacle of meeting. Now, I mean, I can't imagine that. I mean, can you imagine how scary that would be? It was like God is like, come out here right now. I mean, I don't know if that's what God sounds like, but I'm sure it's not like, hey, guys, you know, because then, I mean, who would be trembling if he had a squeaky voice like that? And so they all came out, and God, God appears before them in this, like, column of smoke right before them, and he says to them, I'm sure he's, like, looking at Miriam and, and Aaron, if I guess if a column of smoke can look any place. And he says to them, I speak to my prophets through dreams and through visions, but I speak to Moses face to face. And so he points out to them that he chose Moses. It says in Numbers chapter 12 that Moses was a man who was the most humble man on the earth right there. And clearly, Miriam and Aaron weren't so humble because they're like, well, God, doesn't God speak to us? How come he's in charge of everything? Shouldn't we get to be in charge of some stuff too? And God came down and he rebuked them. And then he struck Miriam with leprosy. He covered her body. It says that the cloud went up out of there and Miriam's skin was white with leprosy because her, her inward sin of grumbling and, and, and gossip and bad attitude went from the outside, uh, inside to the outside immediately in the presence of everybody. And so Moses immediately goes and pleads for his sister's life to God. And God says, fine, but she has to go outside the camp for seven days, and then I'll cleanse her, and then she can come back in. And that's, that's what, it, what they're talking about right here. He's talking about an outbreak of leprosy and, and what they had to do. But it's kind of a reminder of that, that sickness that's inside, that sin that's inside, if it's not dealt with, will grow and grow, and eventually it's going to manifest itself on the outside until it's just taking over. And why not deal with that, with God, when at that very moment that you've realized that you've transgressed. Well, how about this? On Tuesday night at youth group, we were talking to the kids um, about a lesson, and it had a little story in there. Um, it was about lying. The whole lesson was about lying. And uh, there was a little story in there, and it was uh, a character, um, Natalie. Sorry, Natalie. Yeah. And uh, um, 
it says that Natalie wanted to do something that afternoon that she knew her mother wouldn't want her to do. So when she got home that evening, she lied to her mother about where she had gone so that she wouldn't get in trouble. So then the question to the kids was, what should Natalie have done? And many of the kids in the class said she shouldn't have lied to her mom. Yes, that's true. She should not have lied to her mom. But one kid in the class said she shouldn't have done the thing that she would have had to lie about in the first place. And that's the answer right there. Rather than to say, well, I, you know, I, I have this sin that I should confess. Yes, you should do that. But maybe we should be a little more forward thinking and say, I'm not going to do the thing that I would have to then confess later. Why not that? Why not make that decision to say, I'm not going to sin now so that I don't have to decide whether I lie about it or not later? Why not that? Why not that high standard? When you lend your brother anything, this is verse 10, you shall, go into his, you shall not go into his home to get this pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall, keep, you shall not keep his pledge overnight, and you shall, in any case, return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteous to you before the Lord your God." For you, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brother or one of the aliens that is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wage and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be a sin to you. All right, so he's talking about a couple of things here, but these are really important issues. One of the things he says, if you're, if you're lending to someone who is very much in need, don't just barge into your house and say, hmm, I will take this and grab it as a pledge and then walk out. First of all, he's saying it's incredibly demeaning to somebody to say, well, you're poor and I'm not poor, so I get to do whatever I want and go in and I'm just going to take whatever. It says, go ahead and make that deal, but let the person go into their house and get whatever it is they're giving to you and give it to you as a pledge. This was uh, like collateral. But he's also saying that if it happens to be his coat, that he gives you because that's the only thing he owns, then you have to give it back to him at the end of the day because he wears it as a blanket to sleep. And so you're supposed to not treat people like less than people just because you have more money than them, right? There's a message here that says that God is saying, he's a person, you're a person, treat that person like a person just because you have more money or more things or more, more position doesn't mean you're a better person than they are. Treat them like a person. Don't just barge into their house and well, I'm going to take whatever I want because I am more than you. I'm going to keep your coat. Too bad. You made bad decisions. Too bad for you. You don't get a coat at night now until you pay me back. Now God says, no, lend them the money, take the coat, but every day give it back to them so that he can wear it at night and keep himself warm. You see the kind of compassion that God is talking about here? The kind of compassion that we're supposed to have don't treat the poor like any less of a person. Money doesn't make you more of a person, does it? Does money make you more of a person? Money's just money. That's all it is. <clears throat> this says when you hire somebody then you agree to pay them, at the end of the day, pay them, right? It doesn't say 
um, when at the end of the day say, oh, you know what, I, I, I left my checkbook at home, I'll get you next week. Because this is saying that that person needs that money for the day's work that they just gave you. They rely on it. They need it to survive. So you're being incredibly selfish by just saying, no, 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 you know what, I'll get you next week. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He says, pay them at the end of the day before the sun goes down. Do not be a selfish person. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for fathers. As a person should be put to death for his own sins. <laughs> I'm glad for that. You shall not pervert justice do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. From there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Every single person that he's talking to was either born in the wilderness or came from direct slavery. Every single one of them, no matter where they would rise to in their life coming, they all came from that same place of slavery. And God said, I redeemed you from there. Don't you forget where you came from, lest you start thinking so highly of yourself and all that you've attained and accomplished. Don't forget where you came from. And when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Whether you, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger and the fatherless and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And what he's saying here is, I will use you all to provide for those who don't have enough for themselves. So when you <clears throat> harvest your wheat... Leave some behind. In fact, in Leviticus, it's going to tell them that they're not to harvest the corners of their fields, but to leave it open. Not just so that they've got um, just the scraps left behind, but they actually had sections of their field that were left behind so that the, the poor could walk through the fields and pick the grain enough that maybe it would supply them for food for them, for them and their families. Same with the olive trees. You know, do you ever see anybody harvest olives? I mean, um, it says olives, right? Do you know how they do that? They still do it the same way. They, they shake the tree. And all the, you guys, do you ever see it done out there in California? Yeah. So they like shake the trees. And what, they're say, what he says is here is like one time, they would actually here, they would take sticks and they would beat the trees this way. Um, but they say, you get one pass at that. God says one pass, you get all the olives that come off, but don't do it over and over and over again because then you're leaving some for those who come. Same thing with the grapes. So you go through and you pick the grapes, as many as you can, but you leave some behind for those who need more and you will be blessed in the process. Now, there's one, one story that's coming to my mind here when I think about this, and it's the story of Naomi and Ruth. You guys know this story? Naomi had uh, a husband and two sons and they moved out of Bethlehem, and they went off to a foreign land. And in that foreign land, their sons then grew up and married to uh, each, the, each a wife. Um, and their names were Oprah, <laughs> no, it's like Orpha, thank you, and, and Ruth, right? Well, Naomi's husband uh, passes away. And so now she's left with her two sons and her two daughter-in-laws. Well, then her, after about 10 years or so, both of her sons pass away. So it's just Naomi and then um, her two daughter-in-laws. So Naomi says to them, you, you know what? You guys just go home. Go back home again to your, to your father's house. 
And both of them say, no, we're going to stay with you. And she says, what? Am I going to marry another husband? Am I going to bear more sons? Are those, you're going to wait around for those sons to grow up so that you can marry those two sons and, and be part of this family? No, you, you should go so that you can be taken care of. And so Orpah goes ahead and she goes off tearfully. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. I'm staying with you now because you're my family now. Your family, your people are my people. Your God is my God. So the two of them then decided that they were going to leave the foreign land and they were going to go back to Bethlehem. Now, while they, when they get there, they notice that there's a field um, that's being harvested and Ruth realizes that the field is owned by a guy named Boaz who is kind of a distant relative of Naomi. And so she says, you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to, har- I'm going to glean in the field. And so she goes out there, and she's, she's gleaning the leftover wheat, but she must have been like, like this, because, because Boaz notices her, right? And he goes to her, and he talks to her a little bit, and he finds out what's going on. Then he goes to his men, and he says, you know what? Let her glean wherever she wants and leave stuff for her on purpose. And so God uses Boaz to provide for Ruth, just as he was instructed to do way, 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 way back here, right? Now, this is amazing because it's amazing to me that Boaz decides to go ahead and and leave something in his field for the poor and provide, but specifically for Ruth, because what if he hadn't done that? What if he hadn't left them? What if he greedily went through and harvested every single head of wheat in there, and then Ruth would never have come to his field? Ruth would have never met Boaz. Did you know that Ruth and Boaz are are 42 generations away from Jesus Christ? That's his line, right? Isn't that amazing? Boaz, Ruth was blessed. Boaz was blessed. We've all been blessed because Boaz was faithful to do exactly as God called him to do and to provide for someone who was in need. That's that, that amazing. Man, what if he didn't do that? Well, God would have found a way. But they were blessed. I'm blessed. The last verse, says, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. You know what, as I read that and I just highlighted it and I sat with it this week, this is what I heard God saying is, remember that you once did not believe any of this either. You once did not believe any of this either. Because sometimes I feel like we get to a place where we feel very like puffed up in our Christian knowledge or Christian life. And we think, you know what, I can't believe that everybody doesn't get this, or what's the matter with them? Or I have a friend who's just frustrated all the time with the world, just all the time frustrated. And I keep on saying to myself and to him, why are you so frustrated with an ungodly world when they don't act godly? Why would they? Remember, you once did not believe this also. You once, and maybe, you know what, maybe you were four <laughs> and, you, and you got saved when you were five years old. But many of us were adults and we lived a good portion of our life not believing any of this. Um, but somebody showed us compassion. Somebody was kind to us. Somebody was good, different, and drew us in, right? It's important for us to remember that we once did not believe this either, and to look at those who don't believe with that same kind of compassion. Amen? Now let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for your word today. I thank you for mothers. Lord, without my mother, I wouldn't be here today. So, Lord, I thank you for her. 
Lord, I, I thank you for the way that you challenge us in your word, that you direct our lives. Lord, I, I thank you so much for challenging me to examine myself. Lord, for, for leaning on me when I need to let go and, and let you take it over. I pray that as we go out of this place today, Lord, that we would go out just maybe different than when we came in. Lord, that we would go out thinking, what does it mean for me to be good different? Lord, how can I be compassionate to those in this unbelieving world that surrounds us now, Lord? That I might be a refuge to help them find freedom from their slavery. Lord, I thank you so much. I ask your blessing on this day. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.